This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's good and perfect word comes from Luke chapter 20, 27 through 44. That's Luke 20, 27 through 44. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, And the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Try that again. Good morning. Now you can hear me. If you have your Bibles, have them open to Luke uh, chapter 20 as we continue this journey of Christ towards the cross. As we're, as we're watching Christ move towards uh, the purpose for which he came to this, this planet, which was to die for sinners. And just before we, we do the, the sermon, I would just ask that we would take a moment and look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Lord, we have to admit we have heavy hearts, specifically here in Michigan, as we saw uh, what unfolded on the Michigan State campus. Lord, we pray for those students uh, who have all been affected. We know that three have passed away. We pray for their families. We pray, Lord, for the families of all those students. Lord, we pray that you would minister to their needs in ways that we cannot probably even imagine. Lord, I pray that you would 
help others to point them to Christ so that they would find the security and the hope that we know one can have even in the face of death. But Lord, we pray for healing for each student that has been affected by this horrific tragedy. Lord, we do pray that you would minister uh, not just to the students there, but to all of us that have been affected by that. Many of us have loved ones that were on the campus, and we ourselves were, were, were worried and concerned. And so, Lord, I know there's been trauma and effects upon many that even were not physically there upon the campus. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us in this hour. We pray, Lord, that as we come to you, looking to you to be um, our chief joy that you would be just that for us. And Lord, that we know that that requires our eyes and, uh, to be opened, our hearts to be soft, uh, our minds to be teachable. And Lord, we pray that that would be the case. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and teach us your word, guide us, instruct us, lead us. Lord, we pray each and every week that as we come and sit under your word that we would be changed. And Lord, we pray that today. We pray that we would be transformed made more and more into the beloved image of our Savior, and that we would hate sin and love righteousness, that we would see victory over our emotional battles, our spiritual battles, and even our physical battles. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling physically, and Lord, we pray for healing. We pray, Lord, now that as we uh, spend time in your word, that we would grow and flourish. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. The truth of the matter for all of us is that at some point in time, we have come face to face with somebody who is challenging us to prove ourselves, to prove ourselves. Uh, in many cases, that may have been an employer uh, who said, prove to me you can do this job. Prove to me you can take on this specific task. Or maybe it was a teacher. Uh, I remember having a, a, a teacher when I was young. She seemed to always be able to get the best out of us by offering challenges and, and pushing us to get beyond who, who we thought we were. Or maybe it's been a neighbor who said some things about you that you didn't necessarily like and you were challenged by the fact that they were calling you to prove yourself. Well, even though many of us, if not all of us in this room, have experienced those types of challenges None of them amount to the type of challenge that Christ faced. For no one in all of history has ever faced the challenges and the outright rejection regarding to who they are like Jesus has. In fact, what we've been seeing repeatedly through this Gospel of Luke is the rejection of Christ by the religious leaders, the rejection of Christ by those who should know better. And in our text today, it's no different than last week. Last week, Jesus was challenged considering the current state of Rome and, and where allegiance should lie. Uh, the, the, he was given a coin, and, and he asked the question, Who's, whose face is on this? Give to Caesar what is Caesar. But in this specific duel, Jesus is challenged regarding the future, specifically the future regarding the resurrection. Now, the future resurrection was something in Jesus' day that was much of a hot debate. There were two religious camps. One group was the Pharisees, who believed in a literal resurrection, and the other was the Sadducees. As I was in Bible college, we were always taught to remember the Sadducees because they were sad, you see. 
right? I see a lot of heads bobbing. You know that line. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a future resurrection. Really, all they believed was whatever you had in this life, that was it. And so their, their lives were sad. And so here we see in our text the Sadducees, those who did not believe in a literal resurrection, challenging Jesus over the question of the resurrection. What's interesting about the Sadducees is they're only mentioned for the first time in Luke in this passage. He doesn't regard them at all. In fact, many believe this was a smaller sect of Jewish people. Yet in the book of Acts, a book that Luke also writes, he talks about them in chapter 4, chapter 5, and also chapter 23 of, of, of Acts. And it's in chapter 23 that he really rounds out all the things they didn't believe. Listen to the list. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. And they definitely didn't believe in any type of spiritual beings in the sense of they didn't believe we had spiritual beings. We did not have souls. It was almost like whatever you did in this life at the end, that was it. And that pretty much surmised who the Sadducees were. These Sadducees are the ones who confront Jesus with a question. And we're given in our text by Luke the details of this question. But one of the things we need to understand in this question, it's really loaded. They're, in a sense, mocking anyone who would believe in a future resurrection, at the same time trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they can use against him. And so what was their question referencing? Their question was about a woman who had seven husbands. Now, Specifically, we need to understand that the Sadducees loved the first five books of Moses. They loved Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were their favorite books. That's where they camped out. And it seemed that the Sadducees really loved specific nuances of the law. Well, there was one part of the law in the book of Deuteronomy which basically said that if a man married a woman and he didn't have any children, his brother had an obligation to be with this woman so that ultimately he would have an heir. See, the fear was that they would lose the promised land. The fear was that God had given us this land, and if we aren't making sure that it's well-populated and cared for, eventually it may go away. And so they wanted to make sure that each person, each family, was able to get their inheritance. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God gives a specific law regarding the inheritance and making sure that it's passed on through heirs. Now the Sadducees knew this law. And so the Sadducees, having an interest in the first five books, bring this law to light. And you can imagine they probably used this very law in a debate with the Pharisees. And many times probably trapped the Pharisees on this very law because they created this unique scenario. Listen. A man takes a wife, and he decide, dies before he has any children. And so his next brother in line takes the widow, but he too dies before they have any children. And this plays out some seven times. So here's the question the Sadducees asked Jesus that they probably also asked the Pharisees when they were debating them. The question is this, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? seeing she had seven husbands. Now you can imagine the Sadducees kind of standing back and kind of snickering to themselves, like we got him now. Look at the foolishness of all those who believe in the afterlife. Well, their question is really full of mockery. 
Their question really shows the rejection of any type of hereafter. They're poking fun at anyone who would believe in the next life. And all the while, they're trying to trap Jesus. Now, I want you to see something. I want you to see the Sadducees' bias. Their bias prevented them from truly seeing Christ for who he is and why he came. They saw Jesus maybe as a good teacher, maybe as somebody who kind of had some neat things to say, and maybe even as a miracle worker if they kind of wanted to accept that. I'm sure they probably argued a lot of his miracles away. Their bias really got in the way of seeing Jesus for who he really is. Friends, how many of us have loved ones that we know their bias gets in the way of them truly seeing Jesus for who he really is? Maybe I'll get a little more personal. How has your own bias gotten in the way of you really seeing Jesus for who he is? Do we chalk things up to luck rather than truly seeing God's sovereign hand? Do we limit our prayers because we assume God won't or God can't? May we never let our own bias destroy what the Scriptures declare about Christ. May we always hold our own bias in check and under the authority of of God's word. And that's exactly what we will see as Jesus answers this question. Look at verses 34 through 39. We read the Jesus' answer, which he gives a very concise yet very full answer. Look at what he says. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Friends, notice Jesus' very precise answer. His first point is this. Marriage is an institution for this age and not for the age to come. Now, I'll be honest, when we first hear that, that may make some of us gulp. Because some of us, we have experienced great bless in our married life. And the idea of being in heaven forever without the idea of being married, and I know for some of you, you've been married a very long time, it seems like, well, then who will I be? (laughs) My identity is found in my marriage, in my relationship with my spouse. Yet I want to tell you, in Jesus' words, we have no reason to be discouraged. We have no reason for being discouraged. We're not losing in heaven I promise you this, we're only gaining in heaven. So what do I mean? For this does not teach that we are going to be given less in heaven, but that we're actually going to be given more. The intimacy of our relationships will be even better. And yet they will be not just with one person, but with all the saints. Why? Because all the saints are the bride of Christ. And I want you to imagine that for a moment that our understanding of heaven may have been biased. 
We may have had it a little twisted that we're going to have our own little pad and have our own little kitchen and our own little uh, reading room and our own little garden and that's how we're going to go on living life. But what Jesus is pushing us to is to see the bigger picture of heaven. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Friends, Jesus is not selling you less. Jesus is promising you more. And what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees is that your problem is you only think from this world. You only think from this perspective. There is so much more in heaven than you can even fathom. You will not lack anything. But then Jesus goes on. Jesus then begins to hit more at the heart. And look at verse 36 of his next point. He says, For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What does Jesus mean here? They're sons of the resurrection, that they will not die anymore. He actually says that those who experience this are equal to angels. Well, Jesus is not saying that we're just going to be spiritual beings because we do believe that there is a glorified state of Christ. He was physically able to be seen and touched, and we know that his resurrection is a picture of ours. We get that from 1 Corinthians 15. So what does Jesus mean when he says we'll be equal to the angels? Immortality, never to die. That's why Revelation 21 tells us there'll never be no more pain or suffering or death anymore. It's a picture of joy and, and, and refreshment and happiness. And notice the language Jesus uses. The sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Notice the intimacy. And notice the relationship. It's built not on the fact that we're servants in heaven, but that we're sons. And he actually calls us sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Just as Jesus resurrected, so we will resurrect. And just as Jesus is an heir, so are we heirs. We're heirs in Christ. Then he makes this unique promise in verse 37. He says, the dead are raised. Matter of fact, Jesus is now looking right in the eye of these Sadducees and he's saying, the dead are in fact raised. Why do you question? Why do you speculate? And then Jesus will go on to use, notice this, the Old Testament to make his point. Why does he use the Old Testament, specifically the five books of the law, specifically the book of Exodus? Because that's where the Sadducees spent the most of their time arguing. And so Jesus goes right to a counterpunch using the very books that they like so much. Jesus goes to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is before the burning bush. And he's talking in this regard when it says that Moses says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying, notice the language that Moses uses because they have been resurrected. They have been raised. Listen to what he says. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does not say, was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he use that language? Because they're living. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. They're alive with the Lord. And so Jesus is here making his point that the dead will be raised, for they are alive. They are not dead. Jesus is really saying this. If the Sadducees really knew their Bible, they would see even Moses teaches life after death. He's saying, your bias has gotten in the way. You have a wrong understanding of what the Scriptures teach. And then Jesus comes to a third point. Third point, which is found in verse 38. Look at what he says in verse 38. Jesus says these words, And he is not God of the dead, but God of living. For all live to him. Notice the language Jesus uses here. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's already made a case specifically regarding Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's already made a case that they have a wrong perspective of what really is taking place in heaven. They're focused here on earth and thinking their best life is now. And and Jesus is saying, you don't even have an idea of what is to come. But the very heart of it is all of this is possible because of who God is. Because God is the God of the living. God is all-powerful, amen? Think about that. We believe in a God who created everything out of nothing. On Wednesdays in our, in our study, we're going through Genesis right now. And as we're looking at it, we're looking at the fact that God created everything out of nothing. He simply spoke it into existence. If we truly believe that to be accurate, which we do as a church, as, as, as a denomination, we hold that to be true, then that should really impact the things we believe, even about the future. Because we truly understand that both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us that God brings back dead things back to life. How many stories are there in the Bible where a prophet or Jesus himself is raising the dead? Again and again, we've been told throughout the text that God is God of the living. Scripture then makes it abundantly clear in the New Testament that Jesus is the giver of life. Listen to what it says in John 1, verses 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he has the power to create. Verse 4, it goes on to say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then it says this, The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. You understand that Jesus was this light. Jesus was this life. Jesus is God. John, in his own testimony in the writings of the gospel, goes on to describe what Jesus said in John 11 when Jesus said this about Jesus being our life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's exactly what Jesus was saying about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But then there in John 11, Jesus ends with this question, do you believe this? The Pharisees would have said, no, because we don't believe you're God. We don't believe that you're God. Friends, what we do with Jesus matters. We've been saying that through this entire series. The question remains, what do we believe the scriptures declare about Christ? Who do we believe the scriptures declare him to believe? 
Have you ever really considered what it means for you to believe and to trust in Christ? What are the benefits? Life, resurrection, joy, peace, confidence, hope. These are the descriptions of believers. As we're learning this morning, in Christ, we've all been adopted as the children of God. God who raises the dead. And therefore, we are sons and daughters of the resurrection. And Jesus says we have a right, and in fact, an imperative, to believe that. Now, it's interesting, at the end of Jesus' statement there, in Luke 20, verse 39, we're told, and some scribes answered, saying, Teacher, you've spoken well. Anybody want to guess who those scribes were? That was the Pharisees. (laughs) They were finally like, oh yeah, <laughs> right? They were, they were happy that Jesus had kind of put the Sadducees in their place. They're speaking with boldness. You spoke well, Jesus, because you're on our team finally. Again, their bias messed up their understanding of Jesus. Jesus isn't done with them, even though they were done with him. Look what it says in verse 40. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions this point they're done with him they're not going to engage with him they're not going to go to go to go to go to uh, the boxing match with him anymore they're going to leave him alone but jesus in his great compassion is not done with them we see jesus pursuing them look what he says in verse 41 but he said to them how can they say that the christ is david's son So immediately Jesus is starting to put two things together, that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son. Well, of course, all the Jews put those together, Sadducees and Pharisees alike. And Jesus is about to do something saying, you all have a wrong perspective. You all have a wrong bias, and it's about what you do with me. Watch what he does here. In verse 41 he says, but he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, It's quoting now Psalm 110. He says, The Lord said to my Lord. Now notice the two lords there. Jehovah says to Adonai. Jehovah said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, Look at the way Jesus refers to the Messiah. How can it be David's son if David is paying him homage? Now, in our culture, we don't get this. In fact, this argument seems kind of fuzzy. What is Jesus really getting at? Well, in the Near East culture, an older person would never pay homage to a younger person. And if David is the great-great-grandfather of the one who eventually comes as the Messiah, that just means David's all the greater because it comes from David's line. But in this text, David is calling him Lord. David is submitting and bowing a knee to this Messiah. David is saying, I'm not worthy. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, if David understood who the Messiah was, that he was more than simply the son of David, why don't you? Jesus is saying, don't you get it? David understood that the Messiah wasn't just of the lineage of David. That's only looking at it from the earthly perspective but he was truly the son of God from the heavenly perspective. Isn't that exactly who Jesus is in the scriptures? Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And Jesus came and took on human flesh so that he could die for us, but all the while he was truly God. 
And Jesus is saying, if David got this, why don't you? Why don't you, Sadducees? Why don't you, Pharisees? Why do you reject me? Why are you trying to trap me? Why are you trying to kill me? Why don't you worship me as David worshiped me? Church, the religious leaders didn't see Jesus for who he was. Sadly, they didn't see Jesus for who he really was, unlike a tax collector named Zacchaeus, unlike a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who both saw Jesus as truly the sovereign Savior, and they ran to him. They called out to him. They wanted to see him and be near him. Yet these religious leaders only saw Jesus as being in the way. Their bias got in the way of truly worshiping Jesus. And friends, if we're not careful, our bias gets in the way of us truly worshiping Jesus as well. We need to be reminded that Jesus is, in fact, the creator. Jesus is, in fact, the sustainer. And yes, Jesus is, in fact, the redeemer. And therefore, he deserves all of our joy and he deserves all of our affection. And the question for each and every one of us is, is are we honoring Christ like we should be? In light of these truths, that he has given us so much more than what this world has to offer, that he has promised us life hereafter, that even in the face of death, we have hope because of the resurrection that's promised to us, that we have a family larger than we can even imagine, a family where we will have perfect intimacy and love, that we serve a God of the living, not a God of the dead, that we know that all the Old Testament saints who truly placed their faith in the coming Messiah were saved just the same way we are, that ultimately all of us have a reason to be joyful if we're in Christ. See, Jesus offers us life. Jesus is the focus because Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the son of David, yes, but Jesus is so much more than the son of David. Jesus is the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, in fact, has defeated death and Jesus has resurrected to prove our victory. He's the first fruits of all those who believe, as 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says. If we're in him, we are overcomers. After all, isn't that what Paul said in Romans 8, verses 37 through 39? In him, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus our Lord. Friends, isn't that good news? That this isn't all you have? Praise God that we can literally look at those suffering from the effects of a shooting on a campus and say that there is so much more than this and we can promise you that there is joy and peace and hope in Christ. For those of you in this room that are struggling with the physical ailments, even the spiritual hunger, know that Christ is our everything. He does, in fact, have the power to heal. And if we don't experience in this life, we know for sure, as promised here, we will experience it in the next life. Jesus went on record to say, there is a future, and that future is bright with me. Trust me. Lean on me. Love me. 
rest in me. I'm reminded of a C.S. Lewis quote where he depicts the struggle between being satisfied too easily with the things of this world. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is saying, don't be consumed with the here and now. Be focused on me, because trust me, the future is bright. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we walk away from this text, Lord, it's been a rough week. It's been a rough week to see children in the face of danger. It's been a rough week for many who have had treatments and and have physical struggles. It's been a rough week for those who have suffered loss. Lord, we think of the Matei family with the loss of Patty. Lord, as we uh, come to the realization that life is short, we need these kinds of instructions from your word reminding us that our hope in the future is not in vain. And so, Lord, we're thankful that our Lord, he made it very clear that God is the God of the living, not the dead. And so, Lord, we place our faith and confidence in that promise. May we find our complete joy in you and not the things of this world. We pray this now in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.